welcome to another episode of Politics and Pints, episode four. We are joined today by presidential candidate and former governor of Massachusetts, Bill Weld. Governor Weld, thank you very much great for joining us. Great to be us. with you. What a wonderful surroundings. Yeah, thanks for sitting down with us. This is great. So you were governor of Massachusetts from 1991 to 97. Right. Um, what about your time serving as governor do you think qualifies you to be president and uh, challenge Donald Trump? First of all, I know how to balance a budget. Matter of fact, I know how to cut spending uh, in real dollars year over year. I had to do that. I went right after Mike Dukakis and the state was technically bankrupt when I took over. Uh, it was a recession, early 91, and New Hampshire and Mass were the two states hardest hit. So it was my first elective office, governor, and uh, I didn't know there were any sacred cows in the budget. And that turned out to be an advantage because people would say, you can't cut this. And I would say, I just did. Uh, and I cut the budget in absolute dollars. And the Wall Street Journal and the Cato Institute ranked me the most fiscally conservative governor in the United States. That's a good start on being president of the United States. Yeah, being able to come in there and, and look at the budget from a, you know, a, right. a realistic point of view. Right. right. So what kind of approach did you take with uh, Massachusetts Democrats? on trying to cut things and hold the line on taxes? And how, how was your approach to go into a room of people who historically want higher taxes and yeah. spending on things and, and, and kind of say, look, guys, we need to rein this in and tighten well, up here? Well, early on, uh, I, I had a big fight with the Democrats in the legislature over a tax issue. I said, let's repeal the sales tax on services, which Dukakis had put in. And the rank and file hated that tax, so I was able to roll the leadership and they after that they said ah, we're not going to take on big redheaded kid on a tax issue ever again uh, just too much trouble and we looked bad on that one so they let me do what I wanted on taxes and I cut taxes 21 times and never raised them and once the business community the employers understood that they started going and building you know the plant another plant next door or buying an expensive piece of equipment and that's a big multiplier for employment, like six to one, every dollar you spend through accelerated depreciation or something like that is six dollars of uh, employment income. So the, the unemployment rate started to plummet and then everything went well. Uh, and I said to the Dems, let's, let's have coffee and cookies once a week, every Monday afternoon. We'll start with your office, Mr. Speaker, and then your office, Mr. Senate President, and the third week we'll go to my office and then rotate. And I thought it was important not to summon them to my office, which is why I didn't. And they thought that was just fine. And we did that uh, for both of my terms. And it worked so well that they do it to this day. Both Democratic and Republican governors have continued that practice. Right. You was cordial and you had a, a respectful relationship. And regardless yeah. of party affiliation or what ideology you guys had, you're able to sit down and try and get something done. And yeah. it seems like nowadays that's kind of out the window well, in was, a lot of ways yeah. with Congress. So I, or, I, was, I was a fiscal conservative and a social liberal to over, oversimplify. And the House uh, Speaker was a, a fiscal liberal and a social liberal. And the Senate President was a fiscal conservative and a social conservative. So. Do the math. I won a lot of two-to-one arguments. Yeah, there's a lot of crossover. I always had one of them with me. Right. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, it wasn't uh, so rigid and, and uh, blockheaded like we're just seeing now with a lot of people in politics. Oh, it was I fun. Mean, we had a really good, really, really good time. We yeah. took trips to Ireland and uh, you know the old sod. And you had, had Tipper a, Gore had, down there out of Mass, right? He got along with everybody. Tip O'Neill. Oh, Tip, excuse me, Tipper Tip O'Neill. <laughs> Tip Tip Gore. Gore was Al Gore. Tipper Gore was Al Gore. Tip O'Neill, right? I yeah. mean. 
Yeah, no, Tip, Tip was there. He taught me a lot. He said, don't ever sit on a dais. Sit down in the main, main part of the room with your buddies. And that was good advice. Yeah. Don't separate yourself from the crowd. Yeah. Don't, uh, don't act and behave like a king like we're kind of seeing now with Donald Trump. And, uh, yeah, Tom Paine wrote, uh, the, the, uh, the king is not the law anymore. The law is the king. And I'd like to get a, a, a copy of Common Sense by Tom Paine into the hands of uh, Donald J. Trump. Yeah, well, you better put it in picture it's, form it's if very you want to simple. look at it. <laughs> I was just about to say, it's very short and very simple reading. He could at least read that sentence. They have nice colors, incredible <laughs> colors. Yeah, you, you referred to him as king-like, right? Or you called him a king recently? Oh, um, yeah. You, oh, you, this guy so you, much no. wants to be a monarch. It is unbelievable. Tell I mean, us about the, the Republican primary, what's going on with, the, with canceling primaries. So, yeah, they've canceled four primaries. I mean, this Republican state organizations in every state are the Trump organization. He put them in after right. the election. Sure. So they take polls. Well, 100% of the Republican state committee likes Donald Trump. Okay, he appointed them. That's, that's easy to understand. Uh, so my strategy in this state and the other crossover states that permit unaffiliated voters to vote in either primary is to appeal to those voters because I'm, you know, I'm fiscally conservative, I'm socially open and welcoming and tolerant and supportive, whatever you want to say, for whatever minority group, period. You know, I was first out of the box on LGBT issues, first out of the box on uh, legalizing medicinal marijuana. Uh, and uh, so that has stayed with me, and uh, I was alone for 20 years on those, those issues. So people in the live free or die state kind of appreciate that by, by and large. So I'm, I'm appealing to even Democrats, you know, vote against Trump early. If you, if you don't buy his package, come and vote in the Republican primary early against Trump and do what you want in the final, but at least that first vote will come directly out of Trump's total. Right. And you can be assured of that. And, you know, the more liberal the Democrat, the more traction I get with that argument. So I think you're going to see a much bigger turnout in the Republican primary than usual. And if that's right, if more millennials vote and more women vote, and I don't mean just moderate suburban women, I mean all women after what they've been trying to do on this abortion issue where the rapist has more rights than the woman who gets raped. Right. That's kind of hard to understand, to put it mildly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's a little... So if, 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 uh, if many more people come and turn out, I think Trump will lose that primary. Matter of fact, if the millennials come out like 65% instead of 49% like last time, he'll lose every primary. Because they understand that the, these deficits and calling climate, uh, climate change a hoax that, they're the ones who are going to pay the bill on those things. Yeah, yeah. It's a hoax by the Chinese. It's a Chinese hoax. Yeah. Yeah, and in New Hampshire, I mean, yeah, you can let the voter know, hey, you can vote in the primary and the general. So right. it's a matter of uh, educating the voter on, on the That's options right. that they have. That's right. That's, so. We'll probably do uh, broadcast ads on that. This is exactly how you do it, and this is the result. So we got Mark Sanford and Joe Walsh and yourself all in the race in the Republican right. primary. Have you had any conversations with those guys? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I've known Mark Sanford uh, socially, not politically so much, for a long time. He's a great guy, South Carolina guy. And uh, Joe Walsh I've talked with several times. He has the district in Illinois uh, that Phil Crane had uh, years earlier. I actually supported Phil Crane for president in 80, and he had the 8th district in Illinois. So Walsh and I have that bond. but. Beyond that, you know, we're all tweeting every day, and uh, Walsh probably has the best tweets of all. You know, well, he, I mean, Walsh was kind of Trump before there was Trump in a lot of ways. No, that's Tea right. Party, right? Yeah, well, he's a I Tea Party guy, kind, kind of incendiary, kind of, yeah. you know, 
brash comments and but, but you know tea party they say now that oh it's the beginning of the republican party turning so far to the right that's not true when they started i remember stumping for scott brown in 2010 down in mass and that was the year he won that senate seat right yeah that was uh, kennedy for kennedy for, seat. for decades yeah. and the dem said it was the kennedy seat and he said no it's the people's seat and he won but on the you know campaigning with him on the street i can tell you that the overriding sentiment it wasn't even tax fatigue it was spending fatigue and I hope that between me and Mark Sanford, we can persuade people that they should have spending fatigue right now. It doesn't seem to have, you know, vested yet as an issue because everybody in Washington thinks the money is free. Uh, and right. My motto when I was in office was there's no such thing as government money. There's only taxpayers money. Tell that to the boyos in Washington. They think it's absolutely their money to spend. And, and taxpayer, what does that mean? Regardless of party, too. I mean, yeah, I mean, you oh, got to give it to, Rick, to Rand Paul since he's been in there. He has been kind of a vanguard on the budget as, as oh, best absolutely. he can for, no. for a lot of issues. He's and there's been, times where he's by, voting by himself. Or, he's, or, been, he's been Jiminy Cricket on that, the conscience, and, and it's right. absolutely a, a key role. And you know how dug in everyone else is because when Rand comes and says something like that, they all say, what a pariah. Right. He's or, stopping us from doing our business. Yeah. yeah. He took he took a lot of flack for the 9/11 first responder deal, yeah. and that, I mean yeah. whether you agree with him or not, he was raising the point of the budget right. Of, right. of trying to right. pay for that for how many decades down the road. Which yeah. I'm glad that that passed. I mean it's about freaking time yeah. that that bill passed. I mean right. that was probably 16 years, you know, too late in the making, right. really. Right. So. Yeah, and, and that was something um, like I mentioned it before. I was, I was a big Gary Johnson guy in 2012. Really one of the only ones talking about our 20 trillion dollar deficit. Right. It's as if that doesn't exist. And, yeah. and it's just ignored and it's kind of glossed over and you start Trump signing into law essentially almost a trillion dollar defense budget. So we just keep adding to the thing and kicking the can down the road. Well, and, under and Trump this year, we got to a trillion dollars in deficit well before year end. Right. And his big multi-year budget actually added nine trillion dollars to the deficit. So we're now dealing with, we now have a $30 trillion deficit, not a $20 trillion wow, deficit. Wow, up 10? Cur courtesy DJ. It was a multi-year budget, but still, up 10. Yeah, yeah. up 10 and yeah. growing. Talking about our grandchildren that are going to be yeah. footing yeah, that bill. Yeah, it really is kicking the can down the road in a lot of ways. But it's not even our grandchildren. It's the millennials and the Gen Xers. They're never going right to see Social Security. No, I, don't, it, I don't think I'm... I'm thir I'll be 33 in a couple of weeks. I'll be yeah. honest with you. I don't think I'm ever going to get it. Yeah, I, I, yeah. You know, we all feel squeezed. We, we run and work 50, 60 hours a yeah. week. And yeah. it's, it's, uh, it is, you know, we've kind of accepted it. But, well, but you know, vote, maybe something vote, can be done about vote, it. Vote me in there <laughs> and I'll be the most fiscally conservative president you ever saw. Not just governor like before. And then... That That'll have an impact on programs like Social Security and helping to make sure they survive. What would you do about the, the, the bloated uh, Pentagon budget and, and our, all the money we spend on foreign policy and aid to other countries and, and everything we spend on, on war and dropping bombs? Well, uh, as you may know from the last, uh, the last campaign in 2016, I'm not in favor of sending boots on the ground uh, for regime change every time we see something we don't like. Right. You know, like, uh, and I don't think the president, Mr. Trump, understands that. A, a few weeks ago, he announced, I, Donald Trump, I'm, a, I'm just going to send uh, 5,000 fresh troops to the Middle East. He didn't even say what for. He just wanted to do something that, you know, sounded strong. It's tough. Uh, and warlike and, yeah. and tough and pushing people around. But there was no there there. 
And it wound up not happening because he hadn't even specified what country. What country? Where are they even going to go? Like, what's the mission? And that's the thing. You yeah. talk to a lot of veterans. They're yeah. like, I don't even know what the mission is in no. the Middle East anymore. No. And Gary Johnson generally pulled number one among active uh, Among military. active military. Yeah. yeah. That's right. And Ron uh, Paul did, too, when he ran when he in 2012. Ran in, yeah, yeah, in 08. Because yeah, they understand. And, and, you know, who gets killed when we send the troops over? 22-year-old, 23-year-old, yeah. you know, boys and girls. Young, really. young people. Yeah, yeah well, yeah. I have, I have a, a friend who's deploying to Syria and Iraq right now. He's 39 years old. He's going to be serving with kids who were not alive when 9-11 happened. Oh, sure. Oh, you made that point to me, and I was like, Jesus, yeah. you're right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the reason that we're over there. So um, capping also, the, the forever wars, you know, putting an end to them. So, no, Gary and I said, and I would say the same thing, troops out of Af Afghanistan day one. Yeah. And, you know, people on the other side, people who, you know, and I, I think we do want to have a robust engagement abroad. I'm not an isolationist like Mr. Trump. Um, but when people say, well, no, we got to leave the troops in Afghanistan a little bit longer, the question is, oh, well, when do they come home? And they kind of stand on one foot and then the other. And you know what they're thinking. Never. never. They don't it's ever permanent. come home. Yeah. yeah. It's they been 18 years already. Yeah. So when we went in there, uh, Dewey Clar Claridge, who's a senior guy at the CIA, called up his opposite number in Moscow. And he said, we don't want to start World War III over this. We're about to go into Afghanistan. Is that okay with you guys? Or do you take that as a real threat because they're your neighbor? And the Russian almost died laughing. He yeah. said, be our guest. And just don't read about what happened when we went in there for XDX years and yeah. when the British went in before us and got the killer of empire. Yeah, killer of empire. That's what they're exactly. known as, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, they, it's, at this point, surpassed, isn't it? Now our longest war ever. Yeah. It surpassed Eight, Vietnam by 18 and a half years. Yeah. I would and, think and, so. And yeah. the, the, not the funny thing, but the, the crazy thing is, you know, a guy like bin Laden, in essence, was our proxy to fight the Russians, the Soviets, over there with the Mujahideen. Oh, yeah. You had Charlie Wilson, Operation Cyclone, all of that. That was used to, to, to funnel uh, money and arms over there to fight the Russians. Yeah. And then that comes around and bites us in the ass with 9-11. So yeah. Yeah. We're, we're a victim of these perpetual wars and nation building and, and, and overthrowing governments and sticking our nose where it doesn't belong. No, that's obviously right. The, 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 we've been far too interventionist. Yeah. It doesn't mean you shouldn't, you know, keep your left hand high. Well, uh, yeah, but it, and this is one of the reasons I'm, I'm very supportive of Tulsi Gabbard. She's really one of the only Democrats talking about the money we're wasting and spending on, on war. Like in Afghanistan, $4 billion a month. Yeah. So yeah. that's $48 billion a year. You round it up. $50 billion a year, you could block grant every state a billion dollars. Right. Imagine what every state in one year could do with a billion dollars. Right, right. And so, we're throwing it down a hole. How is uh, the response? Are you, are you currently serving in the CFR, or you were in the CFR at one point, the Council yeah, on Foreign yeah, Relations? Yeah, what, no, I'm not I know right. this. It's like probably 1,500, 2,000 different members. What kind of response do they get from your perspective on foreign policy? Because a lot of them are pretty hawkish in their views in the CFR, yeah, from what I, I understand. What kind of discussions and response do you have? Well, they don't say much about the non-intervention part. Uh, <laughs> they, no. I mean, they leave that out. they've been around for almost 100 years, right? Yeah. And, and they're probably the most powerful foreign policy body, arguably, in the world. But I, I have made the point that uh, it's okay for a president to want to have summit meetings with the head of China and even the head of Russia. They're our second biggest, you know, counterparty. Absolutely. Uh, not so much North Korea. That kind of cheapens the coin uh, a bit. But if you're going to have summit meetings with the head of another country, it's good if you know something about some of the issues and if you listen to somebody and prepare for the meeting. Right. And, you know, very senior people, military and national security, have said to me recently, 
the most terrifying thing they do is briefing Donald Trump because after two minutes, a light goes off in his eyes and he starts you know, fiddling with People well, magazine, looking at, a, looking at a picture of himself. It's like a goldfish. <laughs> and he says, no, no, keep talking. I'm listening. I'm listening. Hey, look at that. I'm listening. I'm listening. Hey, look at this. Bill, this is a good you, picture of me. Did you see me on the cover of People yeah, magazine here, exactly. Bill? It's incredible. I was but, on uh, it more times than Tom Brady. Yeah, okay? well, you remember when that? When he went with, to the CIA? Was, one of his first trips to Langley, he bragged about how many times he was on the cover of Time magazine. Yeah. In no, front of the whole great. CIA. It's great. No, the guy's everywhere. I mean, he was one of the first people down on Ground Zero in 9-11, as we heard recently. Yeah, I went to a lot of funerals. He, yeah. yeah, and they looked. He didn't, did he know any, did he, I don't think he went to a single funeral or gave money to a single charity. Well, he also wasn't down there. Yeah, no, he wasn't there. He was probably watching on a screen somewhere. Or Maybe. Well, so when you see yeah, Donald that, Trump that, meeting with um, Chairman Kim of North Korea, you think that's bad, or you just think because he's so ill-prepared and, and not taking serious and measuring the gravity of the situation that it's just no, not I, even worthwhile? I, no, I think it's bad because uh, North Korea has a nuclear program, and the president uh, at first said, uh, I thought the president was going to pull the trigger on North Korea at one point. I really thought he wanted Early to on, yeah. generate a war yeah. so everyone would rally around and he would say, oh, it's just too bad, uh, but uh, you know, 12 million people are dead, but I had to do it to save our country because their missiles were getting so they could reach Los Angeles and New York, so I had to do it. Then he turns you know, 180 and he gets mm -hmm. this uh, reality TV bromance going. He says, what a kid. What a strong kid. These are direct quotes. Yeah. He, iced, he iced his own uncle, meaning he killed his own yeah. uncle. He iced his brother, and that was the one who was poisoned at the airport. Yeah, the, airport. Yeah, the girls ran up to him and, yeah. yeah. What a strong kid. So apparently murder is good. So he likes the guy in we the Philippines who murders. We, I fell, we fell in, in love. love. Bill, okay? He wrote me a really nice letter, and we fell in love. No, it was a beautiful letter. You would love to read that letter. You'd love to read that You'd letter, wouldn't you? Letter. You'd love to read that. I'm not going to let you read it. Yeah, it's like hyper-reality. You know, it, it's, so a, for a well, it's, it's childlike. I won't call yeah. it childish. It's childlike. It's childlike. And, and the guy has uh, arrested development on several fronts. Uh, and he he needs to be praised constantly. So, yeah. uh, you know, and everyone knows, and I don't even think he would uh, deny it, that, that he is a bully. And, and the corollary of that is he's insecure, which is why he needs to be praised all the time. That first cabinet meeting, he insisted that everyone go around the room and praise him. They call around heat praise. They say yeah. have to say nice things and then when he's satisfied with it, he's on to the next. Yeah. What does that look like when he does yeah, that? Yeah, well he listens, he listens. And then he shakes his head, okay. So are you, do you get a sense from, obviously you've been affiliated with the Republican Party for a long time. Since I was 18. Do you feel like there are members of the Republican Party who are, are pretty much held hostage in the age of Trump and they're too afraid to actually vocalize how they really feel yeah. and how horrified they are about the but, way things have become in the last but few But they're years. not, they are horrified, but they're not being held hostage. There's nothing preventing them from standing up and planting a flag, which well, is what I've done. Why do you feel like more members of the Republican Party aren't standing up and saying this isn't normal and we need to I, I do something about this? Like, what, what, what is it that's, because he, he, Trump took over the Republican Party for, for, for better or worse. And yeah. he, it, he's got, I believe, 90% support yeah. from pretty much mainstream Republican, whether it's Congress or... or yeah, certainly the, certainly the state, the people around the state committee, the party, uh, party uh, leaders in, in each of the states, so closer to 100% because he put them there. Uh, but, but I think it's uh, that the people in Washington are obsessed with getting reelected. 
Uh, I was chairman of U.S. term limits when I was in office, so I'm on the other side of that trade. <laughs> I don't understand why anyone would want to stay oh, in do Washington. We, uh, yeah, a lifetime there? You just have to be go, raising money all the time. Go, You'd be go, on the phone kissing yeah, donors' butts go, all the time. Go down there, do a few things, and then, and then get out. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, you know, they want to be reelected. So they're part of this death spiral embrace between the R's and the D's. Demonize the other party to stir up your own base, to give you money so you'll have enough money to get reelected, and that way you have the perks. Well, you know, as we, uh, three of us, three Republican candidates, wrote in that op-ed in the, in the Washington Post a few days ago, a party that stands for nothing but re-election truly stands for nothing. And that's what the Republican Party is becoming. And you know, I can tell you what's going to happen next year if they don't call out Trump on his racism and all the other negative things uh, that he's doing to try to divide the country. They're all going to lose their seats. And I've seen that happen before. I worked on the Nixon impeachment when Mr. Nixon was investigated and had to resign. And I watched all those Republicans, honorable people, members of Congress, defending him all summer long in 1974. I was a kid. Right. Uh, and uh, they said there's just not enough evidence yet. Then the tapes come out that show that Nixon is masterminding the whole thing from day one. And they look like idiots. They've been hung out to dry all summer long. And I think that's what's happening now is Mr. Trump is hanging the Republicans in Congress out to dry. I mean, his, uh, his policies are so extreme. Steve Bannon is saying, if he gets reelected, you're going to see four years of unrequited payback. Why would someone say that except to stir up the most right-wing, you know, supporters, you know, up to and including white supremacists, to get all, all you know, excited? Uh, right. And, the fervor. You know, any any Republican who's running in a suburban district or a swing district, when Trump is on the top of the ballot, can forget it. So I think I think you're going to see, unless something changes with Trump, I think you're going to see a Democratic Congress. Uh, elected in 2020. You think Senate too? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Really? No, I meant you Senate think, You too. think Democrats yeah. take Senate in-house? I do. I do. Really? Yeah. No, I mean, it wouldn't take anywhere near what happened, the swing of 1974, to have the Democrats take the Senate. Yeah. Nothing, nothing close to it. And when a wave like that comes, uh, it doesn't really matter whether the person who's in there has been, you know, serving long and well. Wave predominates. They get kicked out, right. yeah. And, and you worked with uh, actually Hillary Clinton, right, on some of the legal stuff yeah. for uh, yeah. Watergate, and she, I don't know if you were involved in it, but crafted a memo that came back to haunt Bill Clinton later on when oh, impeachment was, proceedings, was, and then you are part very, of that memo, and now they're much, talking about it for Trump. Yeah, yeah no, I was very impeachment. much involved. I reread it recently, and uh, if you hold that up to the light and put Donald Trump here, Trump is toast. You know? It doesn't have to be a crime. It's just if, you, uh, if your conduct... Uh, is inconsistent with the dignity or the way your office is supposed to operate, you're out of there. Because it's not criminal. They can't send you to jail. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, uh, it's, it's vague in terms of... It's just to remove someone who shouldn't be there. And, you know, <clears throat> this president, I've described him as a one-man crime wave, uh, and this is my field. I spent seven years in the Justice Department. He clearly obstructed justice trying to uh, dump the investigation. And he, he's done much worse things than Nixon did. Nixon was like two sentences. Tell them it's national security. You know, Trump is... Uh, We're going to talk about that Bay of Pigs thing. Yeah. That was Nixon. Yeah, I mean, he recorded everything too, right? Nixon yeah. actually had the tape recorder in the Oval Office. Yeah, that, that was what they call a mistake, yeah. <laughs> That's a big one. That was a big well, one. Well, Trump doesn't, Trump doesn't need a recording device in the White House because he's got... He says it all. Oh, he tweets well, it. Well, he tweets it all, and then also all these other countries are spying. Yeah. So a political piece. I can't believe they ran this. 
I don't know if you read it, about Israel spying right. on, on the White House. Right. Trump's the, cell phone. Trump's cell phone. The Chinese are targeting. The, I mean, everyone spies on everybody. We know that. Right. But um, if, if you were in the White House and you found out that the Israelis were <laughs> planting these $150,000 devices around the White House, how would you respond yeah, to that? Yeah, no, that would not be, that would not well, be a good thing. What would you do about but, that? I'd, I'd have a talk with my old friend Bibi, but I, I think Bibi's cast in with Trump. You know, all well, he, I mean, he, he might get voted out. He, what to, he, today? He, when's he, the election? He gifted him the Golan Heights, and they named it the Trump Heights. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's ludicrous. Well, what happened? The way he got in last time, Netanyahu, was none of the Arabs voted, and and they figured that out. So, and they're twelve percent of the electorate. So if they vote this time. Bibi's not going to get back in. Right, and, or moderate and, and liberal, you know, Israelis or don't support yeah. Netanyahu for sure. Yeah. So for years, I was the only guy who, I spent a lot of time in Israel, and, and my two best friends there were Shimon Peres, the famous labor leader, and Bibi Netanyahu, who I've known since he was uh, at the uh, embassy in Washington. Oh, wow, really? Yeah, I've known him a long time. He used to crash at Jared Kushner's house back in the day. Is that right? When he would, yeah, when he would come to Charles America. Kushner, buddies. Yeah, he, he, remember yeah. He, was doing, he was doing a press conference at the White House with Trump, and he's like, maybe now we can uh, talk about how, how close I am with the Kushners. How long I've known you, Jerry? They, they used to room together, yeah. He's known wow. the Kushners for a long time. That, that I did not know. I mean, I think that they like Trump. I think the Israelis are, are a big Well, the hardliners do. Yeah, the, the Likud party. Oh, and the, and oh the, sure they do. Sure they do, yeah. They're and, big on them. And I think that's polluting the whole, I wouldn't even call it a peace process, because at this point it's just annexation and more land grabbing and more settlements and... and and more belligerence on behalf of Net Netanyahu and the yeah. far right I mean, Israel. You, you I mean, know, what how are we doing compared to three years ago before Trump got in? I got to say, a two-state solution looks like it's slipping out. It's not seat. looking like it's ever going to happen. How are we doing with Iran? We're doing worse than we do, uh, did when we had that 2015 well, deal. Trump rips it up and says well, it's he, the worst treaty ever. Why does he rip it up? And, because and, of Net Netanyahu has a big and, part and in that. Now, now he's desperately trying to you know, ease sanctions to get Rouhani, the president of Iran, yeah, back to the table to so off. he can talk about going back to where they were before. Well, Mr. President, maybe it was kind of dumb to rip up the stupid, treaty in the first place. And our, drop our drone down low, too. Yeah. So he also ripped up the Trans-Pacific Partnership. He said, we can't do that because it'll be dominated by China. The poor guy is so uninformed, he didn't realize China is not a member of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Part the whole point was you get a seat at the table with 12 Pacific-facing uh, nations, some on the left, some on the right side of the ocean, uh, and uh, China is not there, so, uh, so it's a seat, uh, it's a beachhead without China. And he missed the whole point. But, uh, you know, does he say, oh, I didn't realize that? No. He says, I was absolutely right ripping up all these trees. Right, coming in and... He, he doesn't have that gear, you know? Um, you had a lot of success when you were the U.S. attorney for Massachusetts uh, prosecuting crime. And right. um, I think only, like, you lost three or four cases, maybe, or something like that. One, One case. What would you do to go after corruption nowadays that we see in Washington and see all across the country? Because you got guys like Jeffrey Epstein, you got... Um, other figures who just seemingly continue to do it and get away with it, and nothing, nothing's yeah. really done. I mean, New York yeah. finally did something about Epstein, and then a month later, he's dead in a jail cell. Yeah. Now, what you got to do is you got to have grand juries and uh, bring in a lot of witnesses, and you got to go up the chain, immunize people down below, and get them to talk about the higher ups. You, you, these cases don't yeah. just fall into your lap. And people, you know, when I came into office as U.S. attorney, we were doing bank robbery cases and possessory offenses for narcotics, a waste of time, can be done by the DA. And the feds have so much greater jurisdiction, nationwide venue, you can bring the case anywhere you want, uh, that the stuff that 
Uh, the so-called victimless crimes, uh, like public corruption, they say it's a victimless crime because both parties to the transaction have an incentive to keep it secret, both the person paying the bribe and the person accepting the bribe. So they don't show up on page one of the newspaper. So right. if you're it's a federal buried. prosecutor, you know, you go after stuff where uh, you, know, you have to prove uh, that a crime was committed, not who committed the crime. Uh, so it's complicated, and I kind of wrote the book on that, and when I got to Washington as head of the criminal division for the whole country, I put a pamphlet, How to Investigate and Prosecute Public Corruption. Uh, so we kind of uh, spread that around, and it was a golden era of law enforcement and corruption cases. Yeah, it seems like there was a lot more going on with uh, <laughs> taking well, these people down yeah, and, I, I and, bet and, it's and still accountability. Going on. It's just we oh, knew how to catch them. Right, how to actually do something about <laughs> right. it. So in your estimate, with your background in that and corruption and um, politics and everything, what do you think Jeffrey Epstein really was? Do you think he was just a blackmail operation to entrap powerful politicians members of Congress, people in academia, celebrities. Oh, oh no. He, I mean, what, what do you think? He wasn't operating alone. That, that was a huge operation no, with a lot of other true. people that, that are, were involved. I mean, and when through you, his partnership with uh, Mr. Wexner, he had Les access, Wexner. Uh, access to the young girls who wanted to right. be Right, well, models. the modeling agency oh, is a yeah. front for human trafficking right. and, and all of that. Yeah. So, I mean. Can, can be. Yeah. So he enjoyed those parties with the uh, the young females. So did Donald Trump. I mean, they they hosted parties together. They were the going only back two to men, the 80s. Only two men and then 26 uh, young women. Uh, Mar-a-Lago. Uh, yeah. yeah, that yeah. was one of them. Yeah, yeah. That, was, yeah that was just the one cheerleaders, that's just right? One or, we've heard about. That was yeah. one. That, that There's new stuff coming out with this every single day, though. It's crazy. Right. And and right. Clinton's not clean on it either. I mean, riding on the express, the the uh, the, the plane over to the Virgin Islands. Yeah. Twenty he, times that we know about ditching the Secret times? Service. Twenty times. Oh, I did. Twenty twenty six times. Wow. Bill Richardson and Bill Richardson's been, name has come out. Senator yeah. Mitchell. I mean, it's pretty widespread. Yeah. I, I think Epstein was kind of a one man crime wave. The crime being trafficking and underage, and then. And he did bring in as many people as he could. And he was a just disastrous excuse for a human being. Yeah, uh, he got away with that for a long time. But when you hear Acosta, before he had to resign, yeah. saying that we had to cut this sweetheart deal in Florida with Epstein because he was intelligence. He was connected to intelligence, is what Acosta said. What, that, do, you, what do you make of that? It uh, sounds wrong. It sounds like baloney. It sounds like, don't go there. It's CIA. It's national security, you know? Could, could he have been, though? No. You don't, you don't think, think so, so at all? Not to excuse that really? kind of, uh, behavior. Well, no, not to excuse it, but I'm saying the reason he was able to operate and not for get, so long yeah, and not, not go to jail and other be people protected. brought down, it almost seemed like he was protected. Or, or meant, you meant mean to. by the CIA or something like that? By who? How could maybe Jeffrey Epstein dirty have people been a who were working with him. Yeah, really, okay. He could have been. It could have been other intelligence too. Didn't he have a Saudi passport? Yeah, they found a Saudi passport in his safe and he had a DynCorp helicopter that had a uh, DynCorp tail number that was. Well, uh, if, he, if, he had, if he had a good defense like he was a major intelligence asset of the United States of America, I don't think he would have killed himself. No. He would have had a defense. I mean, you think he killed himself? Uh, that, that jury that's, is out on that one. That's, that's questionable, that's yeah. One, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty the, the, sure that Whitey Bulger did not kill himself. Yeah, put, put it that way. Yeah, exactly. oh, definitely. Yeah, you, when, you, when you were in Massachusetts, that was kind of towards the end of Whitey's heyday. I indicted I mean, Whitey. He, he yeah, left. He indicted Whitey. He, he just he got to He hit town flee. in 95, right? Yeah. That's when he yeah. skipped town. Skipped town, yeah. He was, he was uh, tipped off by a corrupt FBI agent. Who he, yeah, John Conley. He'd known him since they grew up together in the they projects in South Boston. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah, our dad lived in Southie during those days on East 8th Street. Our dad grew up in Dorchester um, off of uh, Bowden Ave near Ronan Park, yeah. and then he moved to South Boston. He knew where you stayed away from, where Whitey 
Whitey controlled, Whitey's turf, he just stayed away from it. But, yeah. um, no, the myth in those days was Whitey kept the drugs out of Southie. And the opposite is true. He yeah. ran the he marijuana running, trade. He was running all the... He ran yeah. it all. And that was the case I indicted him on. So do you, do you think the whole time uh, Whitey was on the lam, he didn't have any help at all from anybody who was maybe retired, FBI who was dirty or, or, or anyone else? Do you think he was just an old guy with his, what, his girlfriend there and, and they were on the lam and they got lucky? Well, Whitey was a master of disguises. Uh, and uh, I don't know whether the dental assistant, who was his girlfriend, uh, got herself all disguised, but what finally did him in, and I thought he was in Ireland. I thought he was way out where no one would ever find him, in the moors somewhere. Uh, and Santa Monica is like the last place I would have expected him to turn up. And it was a tip uh, because they said, they put something out saying, if you see someone who has knowledge about dental hygiene who looks approximately like this, let us know. And a woman on the street in Santa Monica said, you know, I just read that, and I think that woman there looks it's like that, and I have reason to believe dental hygiene. So that's how they got him. It wasn't Whitey. It was the girlfriend. Yeah, it was the girlfriend, and, and he had, like, what, 800 grand and all these guns? and, and in, in the wall. In the wall. Yeah, yeah he was yeah. ready. He was, like, pushing 90. Look, Walt, this trumpet say, walls work, Bill. Okay, we need the wall. The wall works. Ask Israel. <laughs> Ask <wall>. Israel. <laughs> yeah, ask Netanyahu, my friend Bibi. The wall works. Um, so we just had the recent 9-11 anniversary. We're 18 years out, and... You know, to anyone who's really looked at 9-11, Saudi Arabia played a greater role in those attacks than is, like, really acknowledged. If you were president, would you do anything about that? Would you follow up on any of the leads about people yeah, with I the would. Saudi royal family funneling money to the hijackers yeah, and giving support? I would. I mean, I think Saudi Arabia is different than the other GCC, the Gulf uh, uh, countries, uh, in terms of uh, what they do in the world and how much... Uh, power they have and how much they do involving other countries. So, and I think Trump has decided, no, we got to have them uh, and we will bear any burden and uh, pay any price to keep on the right side of the Saudis. Yeah. We're the United States of America. We, we should not be doing that. And I think it rises to a moral issue in, in the case of Saudi Arabia. I, I say that with a heavy heart, but uh, I think it's true. Billions in arms, uh, open to selling them nuclear technology. I mean, where, where does it end, you know? Well, Trump has no understanding of the concept of nuclear nonproliferation. I belong to a, a group of former world leaders. We get together, and everybody except me is a former head of state. But they elected me because they want to make sure that, and, and I know a lot of these people from my travels, business more than in politics. Uh, and, uh, you know, we talk about the great issues of the day. Once a year we get together. Every single year, issue number one is nuclear nonproliferation. It can't be just a goal. It has to be a taboo. So what does Trump do? He says to the Japanese and the South Koreans, you should develop your own nuclear program. That way we'd have more nukes there in Asia and it'd be a counterweight to uh, Russia and China. So we've been able to keep the nuclear peace with a small number of actors holding nuclear weapons. If you increase that number even a little bit, you just don't know if you're going to be able to hold, the, you know, hold everything inside the bag there. So he has no conception of that. Uh, num number two is uh, religious sectarianism, which is Sunni versus Shia uh, in most of the world. Three is water, uh, and four is uh, food. And speaking of water, uh, you know, if nobody does anything about climate change and that polar ice cap melts between now and uh, 30 years from now, every mountain glacier in the world is going to melt. 
and that's the sole source of uh, drinking water for 300 million people, right. which is about the population of the United States. Yeah, it's a big and, deal. And the, the, every single coastline, including the coastline of New Hampshire, is going to be obliterated. The storm surge is just, it won't even be in terms of storm surge, it'll just be gone. And you might have shorefront property right here in Peterborough. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I got yeah. I got some land I can sell you in Peterborough by the water. Um, the last thing I wanted to ask you about, um, you uh, you helped uh, George W. Bush do some debate prep with John Kerry because you I ran did. against him in '96. I did. What what was that yeah. like? Do you have any behind the scenes <laughs> with W. Anecdotes with W. Down in the ranch clearing brush. No, doing I just, debate prep uh, with uh, skull no, and bones. It, it happened in <laughs> New York. It didn't happen on the ranch. Uh, no, I just told him he was uh, a good good at pivoting. Uh, and uh, the president had to be certain to uh, be able to, uh, you know, uh, go, go to another topic where he wanted to be as opposed to where the loaded question was. But he knew all that. George W. is much smarter than his critics uh, gave him Absolutely. credit for. Absolutely. And he did, he did pretty good. I think Iraq, uh, not so much perhaps. But yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's. But, uh, yeah. but as a president, you know, he was dignified. Uh, a lot of things he did that were not successful I thought were very, good ideas like uh, faith-based uh, initiatives and he wasn't rubbing anybody's nose in anything and saying you got to do this uh, for religious reasons. He just wanted to uh, get the private sector involved in delivering social services, which I did. I privatized a lot of uh, you know, the, the mentally ill, the developmentally disabled. They were, when I came into office, they were in great big red brick buildings that looked like prisons. And I transferred them all into the private sector, had nonprofits do the work, and they were in uh, halfway houses, no more than 11 patients uh, or uh, residents to a house and a staff of four for every 11 uh, clients or, or uh, residents. And th when they were in the red brick buildings, uh, when the state workers ran everything, they were called inmates. So, you know, the families loved this. They got much more dignity uh, than they had before, and it was a less intrusive means of delivering services. Talk about the nanny state. I mean, it was like, you're, you're off, you're developmentally disabled, so we're gonna, you know, we're gonna treat you like you're half human. Uh, and they may not have said that out loud, smart enough, but, you know, they regarded the people they were caring for, quote unquote, as uh, a burden on them, because if there were fewer of them, they wouldn't have so much damn work to do. Right. Uh, yeah. So we saved 300 million bucks and plowed that back into the programs. And people ask, what about the entitlements and social services? That's how you do it. You, you deliver it more efficiently and you can be much more caring. Uh, and one final issue that I have uh, with uh, the current administration, and maybe that, you know, the older you get, the more suffering you see in life. But I, I, and I'm the father of eight and, and the grandfather of nine and counting. Uh, so I think of the duty of the president as being, this may sound corny, but uh, it's a caring function. And everyone knows the president has a duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed because that's why Nixon was removed. He didn't do that. And Mr. Trump has shown he's a stranger to the truth. He's a stranger to the law and has no conception of it. But in general, he's not a caring person. Quite the contrary. He wants to divide us and uh, he loves going after individuals that Khan woman he went after because she was Muslim. She was the one whose son was killed in the Middle East yeah. fighting for right. the United States. Yeah. What's her problem, said, uh, said Trump. Uh, you know, she didn't say anything here. Her husband did all the talking. She must have been muzzled uh, by the Muslims because of her religion. Well, she did have a problem. Her problem was her son was dead and the President of the United States was calling her out by name saying that she wasn't, you know, fit to spit on. 
Uh, and that's his instinct. Uh, he's what they call a malignant narcissist. Narcissist is the preening feature we talked about before. Malignant means you're not happy unless other people are losing. Right. And he goes bankrupt in, in Atlantic City. He makes sure the vendor makes sure the vendors don't get paid. He gets hundreds of millions. The bankers get hundreds of millions. The vendors get five cents on the top. They get screwed. Contractors don't get paid either. They get nothing. Yeah. yeah that's what I mean by the vendors. Yeah, the vendors I mean the yeah. contractors. Yeah. Uh, People who did the work. So he doesn't. He doesn't have any caring about him. He doesn't have the milk of human kindness. And when you think of a president, maybe you don't think of the milk of human kindness. But if you don't have some of that, you're not going to do a good job because you're not going to want to be president for everybody. You're not going to want to unleash everybody's energy because you'll have enemies and you won't want to unleash the energies of your enemies perceived. So I, I think the guy's in the wrong place uh, at the wrong time and uh, I hope you get him out of there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there you have it. Governor Bill Weld challenging President Trump. Thank you very much, Governor. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Real hey. pleasure. Good to be with you. Hey, we'll, we'll clink them. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we'll clink them up. All right. Cool. Just colluding with Russian vodka here. Yeah, we're colluding. Stoli. Bill's colluding with Stoli. Beer and Stoli. Delicious. Thank you very much. <laughs>